So I grew up in a conservative Christian household. Working class, we were homeless for a bit, living with my grandparents in Mississippi. That's where I started watching movies. A lot of Disney films in the early 90s. The Lion King, Pocahontas, Beauty and the Beast, Snow White. Oh yeah, that, uh, that one sing-along tape. Is everybody ready? To sing along! With Disney songs! Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, there were rules about what we could and couldn't watch. Um, it's pretty normal, but as fundamentalist evangelicals, my family's rules were, well, I guess in short, uh, no sex, no extreme violence, no swearing. These were pretty obvious. Also, like, no demons or witches, not too much magic. At least, well... <laughs> In practice, demons and witches and magic were, um, okay? I mean, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, come on, pretty dark. In practice, it was more about there being a clear delineation in the film or the book or whatever it was between the good guys and the bad guys, between good and evil. So Lord of the Rings, that was fine. Willow, fine. The Dark Crystal, uh, slightly disturbing, but you know, fine. Star Wars, definitely good. But, you know, any show that painted witches, for example, as the protagonists, the good guys, like uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, or Sabrina the Teenage Witch, or um, Harry Potter. Over half of all children between the ages of 6 and 17 have read at least one Harry Potter book, with thousands reporting multiple readings of all of the books. While many parents are thrilled by the prospect of their children taking an interest in reading, other parents and educators view Harry Potter as the latest tool being used to disciple children into the darkest aspects of black magic. What you just heard is from a 2001 documentary our pastor recommended the parents in our church all watch. It's called Harry Potter Witchcraft Repackaged, Making Evil Look Innocent. Yes, that is correct. It has both a subtitle and a sub-subtitle. For many years, it constituted the extent of my knowledge of the fictional franchise. Needless to say, fiction was taken pretty seriously growing up. There were rules about the morals of the story. These rules were flexible, even contradictory at times, but the decision to watch movies or take in cultural texts always included this sort of moral calculation. And my family certainly wasn't alone in this. I mean, there are websites, entire websites, devoted to reviewing pop culture from an evangelical perspective. Uh, more on that in another episode. Why the moral calculation? I mean, it's fiction, right? It's, it's made up. Now, the more I think about this, the more complicated it seems. One of the ways we talk about the moral function of fiction is in terms of learning. You know, we say things like, What's the lesson of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Or the moral of the Miller's Tale is you should probably learn the difference between lips and ass cheeks before you're sexually active. Or Disney's 1998 film Mulan taught me that gender is more like something you do than something you are. But uh, hold up a second. How does fiction teach us anything? To say that a work of fiction teaches us something is to make an interesting claim about the purpose of these made-up strings of language and symbols. It claims that fiction functions on some level other than entertainment, on some level other than moving characters through plot points for some emotional effect. 
You might be thinking to yourself, uh, no duh, but think about it. How can we talk about fiction having a moral function? For fiction to be moral, does that mean it has to be somehow accurate in relation to some set of facts about the real world? But what does that mean for fiction, which we'd probably agree isn't supposed to be taken as real? Whether or not it's moral or accurate or whatever, does it make sense as readers to make moral judgments about fiction? And if fiction has a moral function, what's the upshot? Does fiction have moral effects in the world? In today's episode, we'll start taking a look at these questions and hopefully start slouching towards some ways to understand how fiction works on a moral level, if it does at all. I'm Jed Cole, and you're inside the text. Chapter 1. What We Talk About When We Talk About Fiction As an expert in world religions, noted cult and occult researcher Carol Matriciana has authored the best-selling books Gods of the New Age and The Evolution Conspiracy and has written and produced numerous videos for Jeremiah Films. Many argue that Harry Potter is just merely children's fantasy and therefore it's harmless. The lie about this is that witchcraft is reality. This is a true representation of witchcraft and the black arts and black magic. And yet we have people that say this is merely fantasy and harmless reading for our children. Actually, what makes this more dangerous is that it is couched in fantasy language and children's literature and made to be humorous and beautifully written and extremely provocative reading and it just opens up children to want to have the next one. This is what is so harmful. I'll wager you would take issue with Carol Matriciana here, whose cred includes, um, let's see, uh, serving as creative and marketing director for Jeremiah Films, which her husband founded and which made that documentary, okay. Heck, odds are you probably read Harry Potter growing up or any number of other fictions dealing in dark themes or magic or monsters or demons or vampires, etc., etc. And you're probably a nice enough person. There's a point in the documentary where a news anchor is sort of hosting a, well, I guess if you're charitable, you'd call it a debate between a guy who's seeking action against his kid's school for exposing his child to Harry Potter books, and a small bookstore owner who, it seems, approves of the Harry Potter series, or at least, you know, doesn't mind it as long as it's flying off the shelves faster than a griffin or um, a Quidditch broom thing or whatever. Okay, I still haven't taken in Harry Potter. Anyway, there's this interesting part in the segment that sort of offers a contrast to Matriciana's point of view about fiction's influences. Unicorn blood has strengthened me these past weeks. Yikes, unicorn blood? Uh, Jennifer, you hear that and you think, well, maybe uh, Mr. Mounts has a point here. 
I think it's just fantasy. It's, it's a book. It's not reality. And I think children can make the difference. If you were there being asked that question, would you go so far as to say, as the bookseller seems to suggest, that fiction has no relevant moral stuff outside of its own closed system? The truth is that we talk about fiction in moral terms all the time. Consider the following uh, not-quite-so-random statements that I've either heard or said myself or could easily imagine people saying. Video games teach kids how to commit mass shootings. Violent video games do not teach kids to commit mass shootings. Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith deserves an R rating for graphic imagery. Winnie the Pooh teaches kids the value of strong, lasting friendships. Robert Frost's poetry is too sentimental. The Call of Duty games spin an ideological view of U.S. imperialism. Rap music is full of foul language and glorifies degenerate lifestyles. Country music is kinda. Raunchy. The Indiana Jones films promote toxic masculinity and misogyny. From the best-selling team of Bill O'Reilly and Martin Duggard comes Killing Reagan, a page-turning epic account of the career of President Ronald Reagan that tells the vivid story of his rise to power, and the forces of evil that conspired to bring him down. Whoa, wait a second, hold on. Wasn't that last one a history book? I mean, I guess that's debatable, but... I mean, yeah. We might not think about history texts as being fictional. But as a way into the larger topic, let's reconsider that for a minute. Now, any and all history may not, in fact, be fictional, but as philosopher of history Alan Munslow puts it, history is, in fact, fictive. In his essay, Where Does History Come From?, Munslow forefronts the fact that history is not to be mistaken for the past, nor should we think that history is the past's analog in the form of words. Rather, he points out, history is, quote, a narrative written about the past, constructed by the historian in the present. And as a narrative about something we will never, by definition, have access to, namely the past, quote, history is subject to the same narrative and imaginative constraints as any other form of realist writing. This need not be too surprising, even though its implications are pretty important. Like, if you're looking to learn about history, which of the following would you pick up first? Legends and Lies, The Civil War, by former Fox News commentator Bill O'Reilly. The People's History of the United States, by political science professor Howard Zinn. History of the Peloponnesian War, by 5th century BCE former Army General Thucydides. It depends, doesn't it? Because deep down, you already know that, as Munslow says, quote, it is the historian's narrative acts, implotment process, arguments, ideological and moral positions, and all the other epistemic choices and preferences that ultimately invest the past with meaning. Writing a story about the past doesn't just involve a perspective. The historian both makes and inherits decisions about what kinds of stories matter, what makes certain plots interesting, what counts as evidence, whose voices matter, what deserves judgment or criticism, what institutions are supposed to be natural, etc. 
And if that's true, then the meaning of the past will always be contestable. And I mean, we know that, right? As Munzlo puts it, history is necessarily a representation of certain details of the past and not others. This is because historians are always writing from some perspective within some ideological grammar for various reasons at different removes from the subject matter, etc. As a side note, I could get into the weeds on this particular subject, but if you want to learn more about this idea of history as fictive, PBS Idea Channel did a great video on the topic a long time ago that you should check out. Link in the show notes. But this whole contestable meaning thing is also a linguistic fact. Utterances, whether written or spoken, always leave something out, always defer meaning in the very act of creating it. That's because, without going into yet other weeds, a sign only has meaning to the extent that it exists opposed to all the other signs in the system, the language it belongs to. Cat signifies a cat because it's not signifying a dog, a mongoose, a gerbil, etc. A green traffic light signifies go because it is neither yellow signifying slow down nor red signifying stop. Semiology 101. But man, if even history, perhaps the most non-fiction-y narrative thing we could think of, can't be taken at face value, then what do we even mean by fiction? And if we're trying to understand the moral function of fiction, then what do we mean by moral? Chapter 2. What is moral? When I think about moral, I think should and shouldn't. And if something should or shouldn't be happening, then we're talking about things that we think are good or bad, right or wrong. The sky is blue doesn't seem like a moral statement, whereas you shouldn't be so blue, well, is. There's a set of judgments behind that statement, including that sadness is bad for some reason, at least in this situation, and that something else that isn't sadness is better. This is where literary critic Terry Eagleton starts, when in his book, How to Read a Poem, he argues that the fictive, which would include the poetic, has a moral element to it. He defines the word moral as referring to, quote, a qualitative or evaluative view of human conduct and experience. Moral language does not only include terms like good and bad or right and wrong. Its lexicon extends to such epithets as rash, exquisite, placid, sardonic, vivacious, resilient, tender, blasé, and curmudgeonly. All these are as much moral terms as saintly or genocidal. Notice how all those words describe things that aren't really measurable, like how do you scientifically determine that something is exquisite or tender? That's because, as Eagleton says, quote, morality has to do with behavior, not just with good behavior. Moral judgments include such statements as her protestations were more disquieting than reassuring, as well as statements like this evildoer ought to have his eyes gouged out. To which we could probably add phrases like, cool story, bro, and it's lit, fam. So what Eagleton is driving at is that moral language is first and foremost evaluative. Moral statements deal in human values, meanings, and purposes. In this sense, then, the word moral doesn't contrast so much with 
immoral, which definitely gets its meaning within the sphere of moral talk, but rather with words like scientific, philosophical, or empirical, according to Eagleton. We can make empirical statements about the weather. I look upward and I can say, with reasonable validity, It's cloudy outside, and quite dark. But what if I said, as the novel Neuromancer does in its first line, The sky was the color of television, tuned to a dead channel. Is this latter statement an empirical one? I'm not sure, but I'm inclined to say it isn't because it's so emotionally charged. There seems to be a moral judgment behind it, something cynical. Later on in the same chapter is this sentence. By day, the bars down in say were shuttered and featureless, the neon dead, the holograms inert, waiting, under the poisoned silver sky. This definitely doesn't seem like a simply empirical description of the sky. But doesn't it seem like there's something like a moral stance behind even my first example? It's cloudy outside, and quite dark. I mean, cloudy and dark seem like statements of fact, if it is indeed about to storm outside. But within the linguistic context of the statement, those same words, cloudy and dark, have negative connotations finding themselves alongside words like gloomy, sad, morose, and ominous, to name a few. I wouldn't call those empirical meanings. But I was just saying what I saw, right? I mean, maybe, but put the sentence into a different context, perhaps the opening to a story, and now it seems like we can anticipate a plot that probably isn't a happy birthday party on the beach. And if it is, it might strike the reader as kind of funny, even ironic. Why? Chapter 3. But what is fiction, though? Fiction is made up. Nonfiction is not made up. Right? If we think back to our discussion about historiography, we remember that history, while non-fictional, is nevertheless fictive because it has to creatively fashion a narrative with pieces of the past that are by nature selective and constructed from a particular perspective necessarily removed from its subject. On the other hand, there are a lot of empirical statements in works of fiction. Any realist novel, for instance, that mentions or describes real places, references real people, recounts real events, etc., contains statements we would call empirical or perhaps falsifiable. What sets fiction apart, Eagleton says, is that fiction detaches the stuff that makes up both fiction and nonfiction, i.e. the sign, from its immediate empirical context in order to use it for other ends. A novel or a movie might contain a lot of factual information, but it's being used for different reasons than simply informing you. As such, Eagleton says, a work of fiction is released into the public world, quote, for us to make of it what we may. It is a piece of writing which could by definition never have just one meaning. And this remains true even if one interpretation happens to line up with what we might call the factual realm. Here's Eagleton again, quote, Even if we discovered that there was a real-life Victorian orphan called Oliver Twist, it would make no difference to our uptake of the work in which he appears. 
some of the experiences recorded in Charlotte Bronte's novels may have actually happened to her, while some did not. But we don't need to know which is which in order to legitimately respond to her novels. This might become a little clearer when you consider that we can read fictions non-fictionally, and vice versa, we can read factual discourse fictionally. Notes to the Milkman, Eagleton writes, are usually terse, to the point, and written in plain, economic style. But this would not prevent a poetically inclined milkman from noting that two skimmed, two semi-skimmed, and one full cream is an iambic pentameter, even if the meaning of a statement comes from what kind of reception it anticipates, quote-unquote, or what we might loosely call its genre, there's no guarantee it will be received in that way, or only in that way. Observing all this, Eagleton concludes that fiction isn't so much a product of anything essential in the text, but more like something we do to or along with a text. Quote, fiction does not mean in the first place factually false. There are lots of falsehoods which are not fictional, and lots of factually true statements in literary works. Rather, he says, quote, the word fiction is a set of rules for how we are to apply certain pieces of writing, rather as the rules of chess tell us not whether the chess pieces are solid or hollow, but how we are to move them around. Fiction instructs us in what we are to do with texts, not in how true or false they are. So there's nothing in, say, a history book that makes it necessarily fictional or non-fictional. If, as Eagleton explains, to fictionalize is, quote, to detach a piece of writing from its immediate empirical context and put it to wider uses, end quote, if part of the moral meaning of fiction is how it rigs, so to speak, the empirical evidence that it might contain for certain non-empirical ends, and if we admit, as Munslow suggests, that any and all history rigs its empirical evidence by virtue of necessarily selecting only some of the details of the past and excluding others in its account, and you can't identify that rigging without empirical research, then historical texts must at least in part function upon one another with the intent of sort of correcting or contesting the meaning of others. Whew, that was a long sentence. So when is history ever not in a context where it's being put to these, quote, wider uses, wider than just recording the facts for no reason. In this sense, there is definitely a moral element to historiography. But don't worry, it only looks like we're headed down a relativistic, nothing means anything anymore rabbit hole. Because if we're picking up what Eagleton is throwing down, we can still make a provisional distinction between fiction and nonfiction. It's just not a distinction between truth and make-believe. Rather, Eagleton says, fiction is the kind of place in which the moral holds sway over the empirical. Fiction applies empirical or quote-unquote factual material not for its own sake, but as part of a structure designed to say something else, something about human behavior, i.e. morality. The empirical information that is within fictional texts, Eagleton concludes, quote, is there to help construct what we might call a moral vision or way of seeing, and it is certainly possible for us to say whether we think this is true or false, feeble or powerful, frivolous or illuminating. But moral visions are not true or false in the same way that statements of fact are. The fact that what is mainly at stake in literature are moral rather than empirical claims means that writers can bend the latter 
to fit the former, narratives usually reconfigure the world in order to make a point about it. This last point reveals the tension we find in fiction, and that perhaps makes it so attractive and exciting, as well as controversial and intimidating. There's something fragile, even brittle, in the distinction between fictional and non-fictional reading. Eagleton explains that if we take a piece of fiction, quote-unquote, literally, we fail to grasp its deeper moral implications. But in order to make an impact and be, for lack of a better word, believable or plausible, fiction has to, quote, have an air of reality about it. So the frontispiece of a piece of fiction is always saying, take me as real, but don't take me as real. Chapter 4. Doing Things with Words. Whew, that's a lot of theory. How does this play out in real life? Well, here's a couple case studies. Case 1. War films. War films are ostensibly memorializing a historical event and historical people, but are they works of history? Uh, no. They reconfigure the evidence, as it were, to make some point about it. And that point, when it comes to war films, is often pretty transparent. War films like Saving Private Ryan or Patton or American Sniper very clearly function morally to make points about, say, the goodness of loyalty to country, the duties of men and women as subjects of the military state, or the validity of imperial military actions abroad, to name just a few examples. This isn't the only thing they're saying, of course, but especially when you consider the actual collaboration state militaries provide in the creative and financing process of war movies, not to mention sci-fi movies and a number of AAA video games, there is pressure to paint a moral picture generally in favor of military action and warfare, not to mention the specific acts of, say, the U.S. military. If you want to learn more about this particular topic, Pop Culture Detective did a great video on it. Uh, link in the show notes. Case 2. Fake news. Journalistic news is already a genre shot through with fictional and narrative tropes. Media theorist John Fisk actually argues that playing these news texts as readers by calling out and reading them fictively is one way to challenge the stereotypes and ideological biases they propagate. It also works the other way around, I guess. Um, do I, uh, do I need to explain fake news? I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. But the phenomenon of fake news is a sort of area where the line between fiction and nonfiction blurs. But what's really going on with fake news is people reading familiar texts in community. And people do this with ideologically charged news and commentary all the time. <clears throat> Fox News. This takes reading beyond the meaning of the actual texts, like the details of a domestic terrorist attack or the terms of a piece of proposed legislation or something like that. And instead, just like otherwise true details and works of fiction, it takes these concrete events and puts them to use for a wider, even moral purpose. They become shared myths, circulated, 
rewritten and elaborated on by readers as a quasi-community. Media scholar Whitney Phillips prefers the term folk news over fake news for precisely this reason. Folklore, rather than collections of facts, comes closer to a description of what the news is when it circulates and is understood within communities of interpretation. It's not that we can't talk about what's objectively true or false, but that we should also talk about what is subjectively true or false for given communities. Phillips says, this is an acknowledgement that people sometimes evaluate things empirically against some objective standard, but sometimes they evaluate things mimetically, like whether they conform to their tastes, loyalties, worldviews, or whims. So news, which we might call nonfiction, when it's actually circulated in an ideological community can maybe become not completely fictional, but like history, fictive. Pieces of a larger narrative told and retold by members of the group to members of the group. Chapter 5. Meaning is use. Or, what the heck? Eagleton concludes that the ambiguous message of a fictional text is take me as real, but don't take me as real. So, where does that leave us? One takeaway for me is that it's probably less appropriate to talk about texts being, in and of themselves, fictional or non-fictional, at least, like I said, in any intrinsic way. Instead, we might be better off talking about how we use texts. And I mean we in two ways. We as individual readers and we as collective readers, i.e. communities of interpretation. Bottom line is, texts, all texts, are linguistic in a broad sense. Strings of signs made up of signifiers and signifieds. And that means their meanings will always have some ambiguity or multiplicity to them. Meaning is always at least a little unstable. You know the guy's oh. name's on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> Who is on first? Why are you asking me for? I don't know. And sometimes really unstable. And this is true whether we're talking about the Statue of Liberty, which exists, or Harry Potter, who doesn't. That's because, as Eagleton says in a different book of his, quote, Meaning is not simply something expressed or reflected in language. It is actually produced by it. It is not as though we have meanings or experiences which we then proceed to cloak with words. We can only have the meanings and experiences in the first place because we have a language to have them in. The way in which language both pins things down for us to talk about and leaks meaning all over the place is part of why we can have fiction at all. But it's also why I think we can't make some ultimate judgment that these words are in all times and places definitely fiction, and these words are in all times and places definitely non-fiction. This maybe feels like not a step forward in understanding the moral function of fiction, but it is, because this ambiguous state of affairs helps us explain the anxiety many feel about the moral effects of texts we read, listen to, watch, or play. The way I see it, 
The anxiety we have about morals and fictions leads us to at least one pair of extreme positions that people could take, summed up by Russian writer Leo Tolstoy in his book, What is Art? On the one hand, there's the view that art, or shall we say fiction, is merely for entertainment and pleasure. Sometimes we like to feel suspense, terror, excitement, titillation, whatever. And fiction lets us do that in a relatively harmless way. And you know, who really cares about the moral of the story? It's just a story. I think it's just fantasy. It's, it's a book, it's not reality. And I think children can make the difference. And on the other hand, there's the view that fiction is dangerous. Tolstoy describes people of this persuasion as considering art to be, quote, highly dangerous in its power to infect people against their wills. The logical extreme of this position is that humanity would be better off banning all art than by tolerating it. Actually, what makes this more dangerous is that it is couched in fantasy language and children's literature and made to be humorous and beautifully written. My question is, did both of these points of view miss something about fiction? We've seen how huge a role interpretation rather than something inherent in the text itself plays in its moral function. But in that case, what is fiction for? Is it just for pleasure? Or is it for indoctrination? Or is it something else? Next episode, we'll take a stab at a theory by looking back at how others, at least in the Western tradition, have tackled or, you know, just assumed they knew the answer to this question. See you then. Thanks for taking some time to hang out inside this text. You can find works cited and links to a couple useful resources for digging deeper into some of what I talked about in the show notes, including a video series I did a long time ago introducing some of the semiological concepts I brought up in this episode. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send me ideas or thoughts, you can find me on Twitter at electricdidact, or you can leave me a note via insidethetext.wordpress.com. Just scroll down to the bottom of the homepage. The Inside the Text intro and outro music are by yours truly, with other music this episode brought by the artist listed in the show notes with links to the music. Peace be with you. <laughs>